Good morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Steve Williamson here. I'm the only one in the studio today. And I think we have a really interesting guest for you, um, Andrew Basevich. He's an American historian. I was kidding him before the show that he had only written 11 books and not 12 books on history. But he's a specialist in, I guess you. it seems contradictory, but we call contemporary history. American foreign policy, diplomatic uh, issues, military issues. He's a professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University. Um, he was, I think, the director of the Party School of Global Studies. He's a retired military officer, served in the Army, and retired as a colonel. Um, so he brings a different background, I think, than, than most historians of contemporary affairs who, who's mostly – who mostly focused from the civilian side of things. And he's he's um, written all these books, and we're going to talk about his latest book. And um, then we're going to talk about he's got a new book coming out. So when I when I was kidding him about having only 11 books, he's got a new one. Uh, Andrew Basevich, wake, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. One of the things in, in your in your book that you talk about is the basically 1989. Most of us grew up with the Cold War as the reality, nuclear destruction hanging over us. Some of us were not very much worried. Others people were very worried. But in the background was always the nuclear exchange with uh, with uh, Russia. Um, when I was growing up in Oklahoma, the guy next to us had a fallout shelter, and he explained that he would shoot us if we tried to go into his fallout shelter. Um, a great deal of uh, – para- uh, we did the whole thing where you we were told to lie down on top of our desk, you know, and, and all that – all the stuff that brought a lot of fear. 1989, 88, 90, Soviet Union is collapsing – and we, we appear to have won the the great struggle uh, uh, against the Soviet Union. And um, I remember thinking, you know, how are we going to spend our peace dividend? <laughs> so what happened? So it's 1989. America apparently has, has beaten the Soviet Union or, you know, from my point of view, the Soviet Union mostly collapsed on its own. But... What happened? How did we how did we do that? Because your theme is about how we kind of ruined all the possibilities we had at that moment. Well, I think we uh, we misunderstood the significance of the fall of the Berlin Wall because we had fallen into the habit of misunderstanding uh, the essence of contemporary history. I think you put your finger on it. Uh, We, and I would very much include myself in in what I'm about to say, uh, saw history as the Cold War. History was the Cold War. The Cold War was history. Nothing much really mattered uh, 
outside of the competition uh, between what we call the free world uh, and the communist world, you know, with led by the U.S. and the Soviet Union, respectively. And therefore, uh, when the Soviets basically gave up the struggle, they weren't defeated, they gave up the struggle, their empire collapsed. Uh, it appeared to many observers that something profound uh, had occurred. At the time, uh, a young academic by the name of Francis Fukuyama wrote the, an article that made him world famous, and the title of the article was The End of History? Question uh, mark. And you know, forget the question mark. The Fukuyama's thesis was that uh, the end of the Cold War marked the end of history. What he meant by that was that all the big questions had now been settled. Uh, that that with the with with liberal democratic capitalism having uh, defeated uh, Marxism Leninism, there was no alternative. There was no other way to organize a society, and therefore the future was now predetermined that other nations would have to conform to the dictates of liberal democratic capitalism didn't mean that everybody was going to be happy didn't mean that everybody was going to get along but 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 nothing there would be no basis for fundamental disagreement whereas during the cold war of course there had been fundamental disagreement so that was the perception uh, crucially it was not simply the perception uh, you know among uh, intellectuals or journalists it was very much the perception within our political establishment. Almost and, complete, right? And the purpose of, of sort of the argument of the book that you referred to, this book called The Age of Illusions, was try to explain how we got all that wrong. How we go, how we go from uh, the end of the Cold War when we think, you know, we've, we've won. You know, we're, we're in the top of the heap. We are the sole superpower. How we get from there to when this book was written, uh, Donald Trump is the president. Uh, we've had uh, any number of economic uh, calamities, and the, win and the United States is more or less permanently at war in places that it can't win. How did that happen? That's what that, my book uh, tries to explain. Um, yeah, I think it was about 89. I was um, bartending on a luxury hotel on Fifth Avenue, and one night... Uh, um, a colonel, he was wearing his uniform, came in, and we had battery back and forth, and I sort of kidded him. I said, you know, what are you guys going to do now that, you know, that the Soviet Union's been defeated? And he said, the east-west is gone, but the north-south remains. And I was sort of shocked, but he had, he turned out to be right because he was saying that, that just looking at it as what you were saying earlier, just looking at it as that the United States and the Soviet Union was a real misperception and that there was all these other possible conflicts and areas going on. So at the time, I wanted my peace dividend. So I was a little bit pissed, but I thought, you know, probably he's right. Um, so and that's the whole history that goes after Soviet Union uh, collapses into Russia and satellites spin off. Uh, we mishandled the whole thing. As you said, one of the things we did was get into all kinds of wars with folks who we really don't have strong interests. Um, 
I, I, I remember uh, uh, with a sinking feeling when, when Bush, after 9-11, where he had a tremendous amount of support, I was living in New York City, had tremendous support, even among liberals and Democrats. He had a wonderful speech at the, uh, at the site. At, not at the site. He then started, uh, seemed to be, you could see the preparations and the propaganda to get us in a war with Iraq. And I thought, what does Iraq have to do with this? But they were determined to, to have a war. It was, um, it was, even as just an individual, it was kind of depressing. You know, I, I couldn't believe they were really going to do that. They were going to blame Iraq for 9 11. Well, or were they doing let me, that? Let me give you a more complicated uh, uh, version of that. Uh, and, and the first point is that the, the political establishment and the military establishment, and really the establishment media, all chose to interpret the end of the Cold War through a military lens. In other words, the claim was, I, I mean, I, let me emphasize, I think this claim was utterly wrong, misleading. But the claim was that the Soviets had uh, given up because they had come to the realization that the United States was so superior militarily by the late 1980s that it no longer made sense from the Soviet point of view to continue to compete. So... Berlin Wall goes down, we view it as a military victory. Remember, that's the fall of 1989. August of 1990, what is that, 10 months later, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, annexes Kuwait, uh, and George Herbert Walker Bush uh, initiates a military effort to oust the Iraqi army from Kuwait. This culminates in Operation Desert Storm, which begins in January of 1991. In other words, we're just barely a year away from the end of the Cold War. Desert Storm ends up uh, in, in what is apparently a great historical victory. That is to say, the U.S. and coalition forces succeed in ousting the Iraqis from uh, Kuwait, quickly, with minimal uh, casualties on, on our part. And this leads to the conclusion that the United States is now militarily supreme. It leads to the to conclusion that we have mastered war. And therefore, we fast forward a decade to 9-11, and poor George W. Bush, not, not particularly well prepared for the presidency, but he is the president, he has to figure out what to do, what should be the appropriate response to 9-11. He, 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 he does so persuaded that the United States military can't be beaten, that the United States military is superior to any military in, in all of history. And therefore, uh, he embarks upon this foolish war in Iraq absolutely confident. Uh, that we're going we're gonna to do to Iraq in 2001 what his father did back in 1991. Now, why would, why would he invade Iraq? Well, my, my argument is, and it's not an argument that uh, everybody accepts, my argument is that he invaded Iraq not because anybody seriously thought that uh, 
Saddam had any role in 9-11, quite frankly not because there was any serious evidence that Iraq possessed a weapons of mass destruction program. No, George W. Bush invaded Iraq because he was persuaded that the Iraq war was going to end in a decisive victory in very short order with minimal U.S. casualties. In other words, it would be a demonstration, an affirmation of American military supremacy combined with a demonstration of U.S. willingness to put U.S. forces to work in bringing about change. Bush expected, you know, Cheney expected, uh, Rumsfeld expected that that demonstration in Iraq would basically persuade other nations in the Middle East to toe the line, and that therefore there would be no, there would, would be no more tolerance of uh, any more tolerance of, uh, of 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 terrorist organizations. Now, he, he Bush miscalculated. I mean, it seemed like the war was going to go well in the first whatever uh, six weeks or so. But instead of a decisive victory, what we got was a war that then went on for almost another decade, uh, enormous costs, significant casualties. Uh, and here we are even today, uh, U.S. forces are still in Iraq, and Iraq basically is still struggling to put itself back together again. So it was a massive uh, miscalculation on George W. Bush's part. But it's a massive miscalculation that stems from interpretation of the significance of the end of the Cold War and an interpretation of what Operation Desert Storm seemed to prove. So when we in invaded Afghanistan and knocked the Taliban out of power and uh, Osama bin Laden went on the run, why, I guess the, the question people ask, why didn't we leave it there? and get out, why did we stay for, what, 12 years now or 13 years? Why, what was the decision to keep staying past our interest? I mean, we had an interest in getting rid of Osama bin Laden, although that doesn't take place for a long time. But why are we in Afghanistan, which has no value in terms of uh, American foreign policy interests? It's an excellent question. I don't think I really can give a good answer other than uh, to, to uh, repeat the point I made earlier. And that relates to the conviction at the highest levels of the Bush administration. And I think also, at least for a time at the highest levels of the U.S. military, that we couldn't be beaten. You know, if, quite frankly, I, mean, I, I agree with you. You know, you're scratching your head at, here in 2021. You say, why are we still in Afghanistan? Uh, but the decisions to stay are happening, uh, you know, in 2003 and 2004. Uh, and at that time, the decision makers still cling to the hope, the expectation uh, that, that we're going to win decisive victories. Uh, and, you know, by the time it becomes clear we're not going to get decisive victories, uh, you know, the, the, the long-term commitment to Afghanistan has basically already been made. I'm not trying to justify it. I think it's been, you know, we're, we're almost, we're coming up on 21 years. 21 years. 20 years, I'm sorry, of, of, of war in Afghanistan. You're right. Uh, a country where we really have minimal uh, interests, you know, an impoverished, landlocked place. Uh, we're, we're trying to get out. You know, there's been negotiations 
begun by the Trump administration, continued by the Biden administration. Uh, we've actually promised to withdraw U.S. forces by May 1st. I think the speculation is Biden won't actually do that. Uh, but we're, we are trying to finding find, we're trying to find a respectable way to disengage, uh, and we haven't found it yet. And it, uh, you know, and I do think that when when historians historians are going to have a very difficult time uh, unraveling the trajectory of U.S. policy. Uh, oh, I think since ni- since 1989. But more specifically, since uh, uh, since 9/11, because it has been one error in judgment after another, uh, we've made our we've weakened ourselves as a consequence. Now, in my Age of Illusions book, uh, which which also tries to explain why the American people elected Trump in uh, 2016, my argument is that. That that outcome in 2016 was basically a, a repudiation uh, of the establishment. Americans voted for Trump not because Trump uh, was qualified to be president, but because a sufficient number of our fellow citizens were sick and tired of everything that the establishment had produced, to include endless wars, that they decided to take a chance, take a chance on a you know a real estate developer who had a TV show, uh, so it was a repudiation of the establishment, in my judgment. It certainly was a repudiation of the establishment. This is a question you probably can't answer, but suppose that we hadn't made the mistakes that you've been discussing. Suppose the post-Cold War era, we hadn't had unnecessary military actions and probably a lot of political actions that are a little less visible, what what would the things possibly have looked like? What would have our how would our history have been different if we had been intelligent and conservative about what we did in the foreign affairs? Well, you're right, I can't answer that. And and, and I would simply say that I don't mean to apply the book I wrote doesn't imply that bad foreign policy decisions leading to uh, ill-advised wars alone account for the situation we end up with. In other words, I think another big part of the story uh, is globalization. Again, we go back to 1989. Or really, more specifically, we go back to the presidential election of 1992, uh, where George Herbert Walker Bush is denied a second term. Bill Clinton, this young, charismatic governor from Arkansas, wins the presidency. What does Clinton stand for? Uh, rather specifically, he stands for globalization. He's the, he's, he's, he is at the forefront. He's not the only one. But he is at the forefront of people who are arguing that the, clo- the global economy is in the process of transformation and that by opening up the global economy, meaning more trade, more investment, uh, open exchange of, of ideas and technology, movement of people, all of this together, globalization it's called, neoliberalism some people call it, all of this together is going to make everybody richer. But he believes, the proponents of 
globalization believe. We're going to be richer. We're going to benefit more than others. Well, let's fast forward, uh, you know, uh, 30 years to where we are today. What do we find out? We find out that this idea of opening up the world uh, doesn't necessarily benefit the United States. Who's the, who, are, who are the principal beneficiaries? Well, the biggest beneficiary is the People's Republic of China. <laughs> They're the ones getting rich. Uh, we're the ones who become uh, consumers, uh, buying stuff from China, lending money to China so we can keep buying stuff from China. So globalization ends up having unanticipated consequences uh, that, that right now we're, we're very much uh, wrestling with. I mean, the Biden administration uh, pretty clearly, I mean, they're quite candid, actually, about defining the People's Republic of China as a competitor, and I think that's fair. China is a competitor. Uh, but how do we undo uh, all the effects of globalization over the previous 30 years? It's not clear to me that we have a way to do that. Uh, but, but that's also a part of the story, I think, that it's not just a military story. It's an economic story, and it's a cultural story. Part of that argument was... Do you favor globalization? I'm not sure what they called it, in opening markets. Um, it, was, it was almost like Adam Smithish, you know, or do you yeah. favor protectionism and right. mercantilism? What's, the, what's your choice, the modern world or this old world that produces all kinds of economic, what would you call them, economic uh, sticky points where – Things cost more than they would have to and so forth and so on. I don't think people really see any of the positive sides of globalization, which is all the cheap stuff in, in Walmart that wouldn't be there if it was produced in the United States. But that's how they framed it. Are you for, are you for this old fashioned stuff that causes wars or are you for something that'll interlock all the economies of the world? Um, and that was a hard argument to argue against back then. Well, one of the things I talk about in that book is the election of 1992. Remember, that's the election where Clinton is challenging George Herbert Walker Bush as an incumbent. And George Herbert Walker Bush meets challenges. Uh, just getting the nomination, he's challenged by Patrick Buchanan. That's right. Kind of a renegade Republican who argues, among other things, that uh, that open world is going to end up hurting American workers. Now, Bush easily wins the renomination, embarks upon the, the campaign for the general election. His principal opponent is Bill Clinton. But there's another one. And, and, and the other one is this uh, uh, crazy uh, Texan uh, who makes an argument about, uh, the, about, about the great sucking sound of, of, of jobs going to the People's Republic of, of, of China. Uh, and there are people who argue that he got enough votes based, basically to hand the election to, uh, to Clinton. My, my point here is that even at the time, there were people who were questioning whether globalization was going to be the panacea. The proponents of globalization, like Bill Clinton, were uh, were, were, were claiming. Uh, 
think that, you know, if we stopped all trade with Russia, nobody in the United States, except maybe a few people here, that would even notice if there was no trade at all. China, it varies from quarter to quarter, is our first largest trading partner, second largest, third largest. It varies. But they're in the top three 99% of the time. So that's a very different conflict. If we're yeah, well, they also hold a lot of our debt, too. Yeah. And that's a very different conflict with our major um, Ameri- uh, with our major trading partner. Conflict with, with Russia can just be done. A conflict with China, who is our major trading partner and producing a whole lot of stuff for us. We're going back and forth. That's a much more difficult problem. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, I guess the other point I was going to make is there is a tendency in the way these issues are framed to oversimplify them. You know, in discussions of foreign policy, uh, the framing is, you know, either you're in favor of American global leadership or you're in favor of isolationism, as if there is no middle ground, no third way. And I think similarly uh, in, in economic matters, either you're in favor of opening up the American economy to the world and embracing globalization, or you're in favor of erecting enormous tariffs and trying to you know, cut ourselves off economically from the rest of the world. Again, tending to miss, miss the point that there, there are uh, options in the middle. And I, I think either from a foreign policy perspective, or from an economic perspective, uh, it, we would do better as a nation if our political leaders focused on those opportunities in the middle rather than being drawn into the extremes in terms of the postures that they take when they're running for, for election. Yeah, I think the problem that I see, uh, uh, Professor Basevich, is that, is that the American public at large is very ignorant of these issues. And it's in some ways it's kind of a deliberate ignorance. Um, it only it only interests them when it impacts them directly. Something like globalization takes away jobs in Ohio. Then it interests them. And for them, it's a new experience. They haven't even experienced these debates about the plus side and the negative side of it. And so what you have is, is, as you mentioned, is sort of the elite deciding all these things because the population at large, unless they they result in kind of a macro uh, displacement, is not really interested in them. They don't really understand the issues of trade. So that leaves the elite doing things that kind of circle around itself in its own dialogues and not being able to get out as much to the people who might have different ideas about about doing things. I think you're right, but I mean, uh, you know what, we got to give the people a break here. Life's tough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, if, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're married and you got a family, you, you got a job, you're raising your kids, uh, you're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, no, it would be nice if uh, you know every American read a high-quality daily newspaper every morning before.
going off to work so that so that that person and their family could be fully informed about what's going on in the world. But again, life's tough, tough for a lot of people. You know, you're, you know, I'm 73 years old. You're my age. You're retired. You can take the time to read a newspaper and be informed. Uh, and and I mean, it related to that, I think, is that the, polit- the politicians uh, uh, exploit the fact that the American people are not necessarily well informed. They, you know, they, they peddle their uh, oversimplified schemes. I mean, I think uh, Trump himself uh, was particularly adept at that. Immigration is complicated. Uh, border security is complicated. Uh, but you get a guy like Trump who says, "Elect me president, and I will build a wall, and the problem's going to be fixed." Uh, and, and sad to say, uh, I think too too many, in my opinion. Too many of our fellow citizens say, "Yeah, that's it. That's all we got to do is we have to just build a wall, and everything will be everything will be fine." Uh, I think that's an example. Not and Trump is not the only example, but that is an example of the way politicians can exploit uh, an electorate that may not be fully informed, but is certainly looking for people to say, "Yes, I can fix this problem. You know, vote for me. I can fix this problem." But he's not the only offender there. Yeah, and they will even offer to fix problems that don't exist, which is which is easy. Those are the easiest problems to fix are the ones that don't exist, where you you claim something and then can. Then I yeah I don't fault the American people really for not being more involved. What I see is a contradiction for how we get more. You know, air traffic between the people and, and the elite policymakers, because the American people, you're right, are never going to have time to follow the intricacies on, that you get on foreign affairs. They're never going to want to know what's going on in, you know, Afghanistan before there's a war there. Um, but I, the question I wanted to get back to is, um, what should our policy be? We seem to have entered war after war. And actually, after World War II, um, that we don't really understand the people that we're getting into a, a fight with. We don't understand the culture. Afghanistan is an example of a of a country whose entire history is resisting foreign invaders. I don't know how we missed the boat so far, but the Taliban is seen as the patriots fighting for Afghanistan, and the guys we have installed are seen as uh, foreign lackeys. And that's what's happened, and that's that's why they the, the Taliban keeps replacing itself, is they seem to have some sort of recruiting thing where, they, where they're able to keep up the fight, where the government we're supporting is, is, seems to be constantly weakened by conflict. Well, you know, it, it's a government that we installed. You made the point a minute ago that there is a – I'm not an Afghanistan expert, but, but it, there does appear to be a deep-seated sense of resentment about foreigners either occupying Afghanistan or trying to dictate the future of Afghanistan. And that's what we've been trying to do for going on the last two decades without much success. But to your, your larger question – um, we're never 
we're never, in my judgment, never going to get out of the fix that we're in until we're really willing to uh, address some really first-order questions about the way the world works and about our role in the world. Uh, the in in Washington, uh, you know, in in the editorial offices of the New York Times and the Washington Post and Foreign Affairs Magazine and so on, uh, this this notion that we are uniquely called to lead the world uh, is deep seated. Where's that idea come from? Uh, I think it basically comes from the way uh, elites read the 20th century, and particularly the second half of the 20th century, and particularly the way we read uh, World War II as the centerpiece of our historical consciousness. Uh, and that leads to the conviction that the, the world as it existed between 1940 and 1950, let's say, somehow still exists today, <coughs> when that is utterly false. Uh, the, the notion that we, we are the world's superpower, the only superpower, <coughs> is utterly false. So we have, to, we have to unlearn, as a people, as a nation, we have to unlearn things that we, uh, we've for too long uh, come to take for granted, I think. It's a multipolar world. We're not the only superpower. Uh, we should learn from Afghanistan We're about the limits of our capacity, <coughs> the limits of our capacity to understand other places, the limits of our capacity to engineer change. Unless we can do that, I think we're just going to perpetuate the problems and, and get ourselves in a deeper fix. So in a way, what we need to do is be more modest and more realistic about what America can do and can't do. Oh, Lord, yes, absolutely. But, you know, modesty, modesty doesn't get you very far in Washington, no. I think. Um, let's, take a, let's take a current in, interest and just... Uh, Incident, and that's uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I guess he's the crown prince. Uh, has a Washington Post uh, reporter killed and chopped into bits in uh, a Turkish embassy? And the Biden uh, regime uh, administration has issued its point of view. It, it first it it did a complex thing. It told. It released the information that he was actually guilty of ordering the murder, and then it sanctioned everybody below him. So right. what do you think of that as an approach? Is that the correct one, or should we have sanctioned? Uh, uh, I, think I think the case you're raising is, a, uh, is an excellent vehicle uh, to get at the larger question you want to get at. So I think you described it accurately. So Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, who's de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, orders the murder of this annoying uh, journalist. The journalist is a Saudi, but he's been working for the Washington Post. Gets murdered in Istanbul. Uh, everybody knows, uh, even before this intelligence report was issued, everybody knew that MBS, as he's called, 
had, had ordered this murder. Biden uh, releases the intelligence report that basically fingers uh, MBS. And now the Biden administration, who, and by the way, Biden, in running for president, had publicly called uh, Saudi Arabia a pariah state of no value and had explicitly said the days when we trade our convictions and our values for arms sales and oil, those days are over. That's what he said as a candidate. So he's now president, and it's kind of, okay, here's your chance to show your stuff. And he punts. He imposes certain sanctions on some of MBS's associates, uh, but MBS goes free. Uh, they 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 suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia, but but it's pretty clear that they suspend them for a little while, and then they're going to resume that. In other words, there's going to be no real change in U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia, despite what Biden said as a candidate, and despite this horrific murder. Well, what what should we make of that? I think what we make of it is, is we should we we should question why the heck it is the United States considers Saudi Arabia an ally. They, they share none of our values, none. And guess what? The country. I mean, back in the 1970s, we thought we needed Saudi oil. We don't, uh, because of you know developments in uh, you know accessing uh, fossil fuels. We, we we're self-sufficient in 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 in, uh, in terms of, of of oil and gas. And by the way, we have to wean ourselves from using oil and gas if we're going to make any progress against climate change. So to me, even apart from the brutal murder that MBS ordered, the larger strategic question is, what should be our relations with Saudi Arabia? And that question should be posed within a larger question, and that is, what are our interests in the Persian Gulf? The conviction that the Persian Gulf should rate as a vital national security interest is, is what has led us to become involved in in all of these wars that never seem to end. Uh, it seems to me that it's time here in, in 2021 for us to survey the global landscape and reach the conclusion that maybe the Persian Gulf is actually not that important to us. I mean, again, the solution is not isolationism. We don't walk away from it. But maybe it doesn't make sense for us uh, to believe that we have a responsibility to use our military to police the Persian Gulf. We have better things to do with our military. We, have, we should have different priorities at this point. So I think that, uh, I mean, the bottom line ends up being that I think Biden has, is, is missing an opportunity. Uh, you know, he likes to say that this is a time of great change and, you know, we're, we're looking at the future. Uh, in, in, in fact, all he's doing in with regard to Saudi Arabia and more broadly in the Persian Gulf, is to perpetuate uh, policies that have failed and policies that are based on uh, 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 analysis that really is, no longer applies. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I know that there's a people in the administration and people that the administration looks to looks to for foreign affairs who believe and, and I'll ask you about this that we should shift our focus from the Middle East where we really don't have strong interests much anymore to China and uh, 
focus also, frankly, our military uh, power in that direction. What do you think of that? Uh, that I think, I think there's no question that there is a power shift uh, occurring in East Asia. I mean, it doesn't take a particularly brilliant analysis to, you know, understand that China is becoming richer and more powerful, uh, and, it, and that China has ambitions. Not clear to me exactly what those ambitions are. I know that they want to run the world, uh, but they do have ambitions. I don't think that necessarily leads to the conclusion, oh, we have to put more U.S. forces in the Asia-Pacific. You know, there's a lot of, I think, uh, the general notion that we're headed toward toward a Cold War with the People's Republic of China, that that we're going to replicate the U.S.-Soviet relationship of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I sure as heck hope that doesn't happen. that uh, you know that, that a military competition uh, emerges from the challenges of ordering uh, U.S.-China relations, but given the influence of the military-industrial complex, I'm, I'm sorry to say that that that, that uh, would appear to be not unlikely. Yeah, some of the things that the United States is complaining about China, like loaning money to African countries and helping them build a dam here or uh, um, medical centers there, those complaints seem kind of um, dishonest because it's the kind of stuff we did for a long time. And we've kind of backed off from doing that sort of stuff, and China's stepped in the gap. Well, that's, you know, that's what they've done. And that's. That's not a crime, uh, but I think that they – it's hard for me to believe, given China's history, that they want to run the world. What they want to do is return to a powerful, strong, respected China, and they want to have influence over all their neighbors. I think that's correct, and that means they're going to be bumping into those neighbors, uh, and that means that there are going to be you – know, there's no question that issues related, for example, to Taiwan, to Hong Kong. Uh, are are going to be problematic. Uh, I think there's no there other countries in the neighborhood, uh, Vietnam, uh, Japan. Uh, they're not going to be deferential uh, to China. So there's the, 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 the complexities uh, are enormous, uh, and trying to manage relations with China will undoubtedly be you know a first order concern. Uh, for U.S. policymakers for the remainder of this uh, century. My only point is, yeah, but don't assume that the the solution is for us to uh, embark upon a Cold War. Uh, We've been talking to Andrew uh, Basevich. We're running out of time. I just got the two-minute signal. He's written now 12 books. We expect a new one. What, and give, me, give us the name of the new book and uh, where people can get it when it's going to come out. It's called After the Apocalypse. After the Apocalypse. And it, 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 you can already pre-order it on, uh, on Amazon. But actual publication date is not until June 8th. The publisher is Metropolitan Books of New York. Uh, basically, the book tries to, to make sense of the implications of this very difficult year that we have encountered. Difficult because of the ineptitude of the, of the Trump presidency, difficult because of the 
pandemic, difficult because of the economic fallout from the pandemic, difficult because of uh, the looming effects of, of climate change. And the American people have been you know, with some pretty heavy burdens. I'm afraid we've run out of time. I'd like to thank Democrats of the Red Rocks for their support. Um, Yavapai Democrats, El Portal Hotel, great pet-friendly hotel. You can get all these shows on our uh, website. Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.